Well, we are in Psalm 118 this morning. We're doing our Christmas playlist series, and this is another Messianic Psalm. Uh, This is between, it's Psalm 118. Interestingly, it's between the shortest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 117, and the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. But we get to look at 118, so make sure you're there. Well, every Christian has a testimony. And one of the amazing things that I love about our church is that every Sunday evening, we get to hear baptism testimonies, testimonies of people who have been saved by the grace of God. And it's so refreshing every Sunday morning to hear those testimonies of God's grace in the salvation of a sinner. So every Christian has a testimony, but there are other kinds of testimonies too. A testimony is simply the story of an event or a recount, recounting of something that has happened told by someone who was there. There are different kinds of testimonies. There are court testimonies, courtroom testimonies, where a witness will testify uh, before the jury and the judge the events that have taken place in this case so that they can make a more informed legal decision. Uh, There are salvation testimonies, which you are probably most familiar with, that every Christian has, the story of how God saved you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. There are also testimonies of victory in battle, stories of how a battle which could have been lost and probably would have been lost, but it was won. And so it's amazing to hear the accounts of testimonies like this. Some testimonies are especially powerful and impactful. There are just some that stand out that really resonate. And some are so powerful and so important that they are even recorded in song and sung by generations for years after the occurrence that they testify of. You know a testimony song like this, and I bet that you've even sung it many times, but perhaps you don't understand the full significance behind it or appreciated what it's actually about. And so I want to tell you the story of how this particular testimony song began and why so many people still sing it today. It's a testimony of great power and impact and significance. Well, the day is September 14, 1812. The place, Baltimore, Maryland. More specifically, at this port town on the eastern side of the United States, there is a military fort, Fort McHenry, And on this morning, this early morning of September 14, 1812, in Baltimore, Maryland, this harbor town at Fort McHenry, a battle has been raging all night. And the first light is finally peeking over the horizon in the morning. But there is a poet who is also a prisoner of war, held captive along with two other soldiers aboard a British warship. So here's an American prisoner of war held captive with two other American soldiers aboard a British warship that is just off the coast of Baltimore, Maryland. His name, Francis Scott Key. And Francis Scott Key, if he looks carefully out of the porthole of this ship, straining his eyes, he can see Fort McHenry there on the shore. And what he's looking for is a banner, the American flag flying 
over the fort. The banner flying signifies that the country is alive and well. For the banner to come down would signify that the country has been lost. If, if an enemy came in and took over a fort, they would take down the banner and put their own up. And so whether or not this flag is still flying is very important. This battle was especially significant, the Battle of Fort McHenry. It's one of the last battles of the War of 1812, a war which is also called the Second War of Independence because of the significance that this battle played in American history. The First War of Independence, or the Revolutionary War, was fought to gain America's independence from Great Britain, and here in 1812, that independence is again threatened by the same country. The British are fighting again against the Americans, and the outcome of this battle will largely determine if America stays the land of the free and the home of the brave. And the symbol of the status of the country at that point was that flag flying over Fort McHenry. This is why Francis Scott Key yearned so anxiously to see if the banner was still waving. And so he pens the famous words, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? You see, it had been a stormy night, a dark night. It was hard to see throughout the night if that flag was still flying, even as rockets launched from the British ships towards that fort. But he says as the morning dawns, Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light? what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. You see, what Francis Scott Key was rejoicing in in this moment was that as morning dawned, he still saw that flag flying. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. The battle had not been lost. The flag was still there. The country was still intact. America would still be free he would have hope that he finally might see the end of this war and be free as a citizen again in the country of America. And his famous words, which he wrote as a poem and as a song commemorating this great sight on that morning, the Star-Spangled Banner, would become the national anthem of America, or in other words, a testimony song. A song sung by millions of at every important event in America, commemorating the amazing victory, the important victory, the victory without which America would no longer be a nation. And so this is an important song of testimony. It recounts a determinative moment. It's one that is remembered. It's one that we all know by heart and would sing with joy if we understand its significance. It is a great testimony song. But we are here this morning to talk about something even greater. We're here to tell a greater story, and so I want to tell you a greater testimony and an even better song, and you guessed it, it's Psalm 118. And I hope to show you this morning that this is not just any testimony. It is the most powerful, the most important, and the most impactful testimony ever told. It would not just be sung for centuries but for millennia. And it would not just be sung by Americans, but by people from all peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations who fear the Lord and worship Jesus Christ. This testimony song, Psalm 118, I will argue, is Jesus' testimony. Jesus' testimony is what we get to study 
this morning. And as we began, I want to show you a little bit of why we can say that this is Jesus' testimony song. First of all, we can look at the psalm's authorship, or rather, the lack of mention of authorship. Usually, or many times, a psalm will have a statement at the beginning talking about who wrote it, a psalm of David, or even of the sons of Korah, or the song of Moses. This psalm does not have an author mentioned. And many have tried to determine who the author of this psalm was, and it certainly did have a human author, probably someone like Moses or David. Some say that Moses wrote this song because there are things that are very similar to the Exodus that are described here. Exodus 15.2 says, Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Well, that's also verse 14 of this psalm. And it also talks about the right hand of Yahweh succeeding. That's in both Psalm 118 and in Exodus. And some say that this psalm must be by David because it's speaking as a king. The author speaks as a king who is surrounded by enemies and, and will cut them off. So some say maybe it's Moses. Some say maybe it's David. Perhaps it is. But this song, while it is similar to the contexts of Moses and David, it is actually different still. And I'll argue that what happens in this psalm is even greater than the first Exodus, and it's even greater than David defeating his enemies. And the reason that a human author is not mentioned, I believe, is to put more emphasis on the divine author of this psalm. This is a psalm about Yahweh, the mighty God, the eternal king, the one who accomplishes salvation. If you count the number of times Yahweh is mentioned by name in this psalm, you reach 28 in just 29 chapters. Yahweh is mentioned 22 times. Yah, the shortened version of his name, is mentioned six times. And if you add the pronouns referring to him, you get 45 mentions of Yahweh in this psalm. This psalm is about his glory, his honor, his goodness, his love. And so we see the emphasis on God in this psalm. The events of this psalm also do not perfectly match, although they seem similar, with any events recorded in the Old Testament. And that actually leads us to conclude that the events in this psalm perhaps hadn't happened yet when it was written. They would be prophetic. They would be about something that a future leader, a future king would do. This psalm also boasts the most quotations and allusions to the New Testament. We learned last week from David that that Psalm 110, verse 1, had the most quotations of any verse in the Bible. Well, Psalm 118, this one here as a whole, Psalm had the most number of allusions and quotations. Depending on how you count, it could be 20 to 60 references of this Psalm in the New Testament. It's an important Psalm. And also in many areas and many times, the subject of this Psalm is pointed out to be Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus himself says that it's about him in Matthew 21 and 42, and in Mark 12, 10 through 11, and in Luke 20, verse 17. Jesus quotes the passage about the stone, which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. He says that's talking about him. The crowds in Jesus' time also believed that this psalm was about him. You see, there's a section that says Yahweh save Yahweh succeed verse 25. 
The Hebrew word save is hoshiana, which in Greek comes over to hosanna. So when the crowds cry hosanna to the son of David, they are equating the person in this psalm with Jesus himself as he enters Jerusalem. Peter also calls Jesus the precious cornerstone. And he calls him the stone which the builders rejected in Acts 4.11. And so all of these factors point to Jesus as the true subject of this psalm. And another interesting fact that is quite cool is that Jesus himself, while he was on earth, actually sang this song as a hymn. That's in Matthew 26, 30. In Matthew 26 and verse 30, he had just finished the Passover with his disciples. And so it says, he says in verse 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So they just finished the Passover. And then verse 30, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And there is very good evidence that that hymn is actually in, includes Psalm 118. This is a psalm that's the cap off of a range of psalms. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 are known as the Egyptian Hillel Psalms. Hillel means praise. They're praise for the exodus out of Egypt. And the Jews would sing Psalms 113 and 114 before the Passover and Psalms 115 through 118 after the Passover. And Jesus, who participated often in the same feasts and the same cultural practices of his people during the time when he was on earth, would have sung Psalms 115 through 118 after the Passover. So when the scripture records that he sang a hymn, I believe that Matthew, as the one writing to the Jews, assumes that his readers know what that hymn is. It's this psalm. So Jesus himself sang it. All of these things, I'm just gathering evidence here to show you that really this can be read as Jesus testimony. You can title the message this, you can, you can title the Psalm this, I believe. So this testimony is an amazing testimony. It's one of a great salvation. It's one that elevates the glory of God, but this is the testimony of Jesus written beforehand. It's a prophecy. It's a prophecy of a greater testimony than any character in the Old Testament ever experienced. It's the testimony of Jesus written beforehand, occurring in history and celebrated for eternity. And as all testimonies have a purpose of elevating the glory of the God who saves, this song has a purpose. And we see that in its first verse and in its last verse. This is the whole point of this psalm. Look at verse one with me. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good for his loving kindness endures forever. Look at the last verse of the psalm, verse 29. Give thanks to Yahweh for he is good for his loving kindness endures forever. This is what this psalm is about giving thanks to Yahweh because of his character. He's good and he, his love is everlasting. And so what I want to do is give you an outline as we study through this psalm in more detail. And I'm trying to keep this along our theme of, of a Christmas playlist. So I, I went with a music theme for the outline and I'm actually going to give you four CDs as we listen to Jesus' testimony. Every point has a word that starts with C and a word that starts with D. So I want you to see from this psalm, the congregation's devotion, 
the captives deliverance, the conquerors delight, and the cornerstones dominion. And so these four CDs, as we listen to Jesus' testimony, and they should motivate us to joyfully give thanks to Yahweh because of his goodness and everlasting love. And I'll give you a subtitle for each of the points too, so you can grasp the main point of each a little bit more easily. But let's look at first in verses one through four of Psalm 118, the congregation's devotion. And you can subtitle this a testimony of thanksgiving. This is a testimony of thanksgiving. Look at it. Verse one, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good for his loving kindness endures forever. Notice that this is an imperative. Give thanks. It's calling out to multiple people. This starts like every good testimony should. Calling everyone who hears it to give thanks to the God who saves to the God who never changes, to the God who is everlasting in his love and perfectly good at all times. It's a call to everyone to praise the Lord and to give him thanks. If you have a testimony, that should be the point of your testimony too, to give thanks to God and to call others to do the same. It's a universal call to worship. He says, oh, let Israel say, the whole nation His loving kindness endures forever. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, that's the priesthood. These are the people who would have been most familiar with the true worship of God. His loving kindness endures forever. Let those who fear Yahweh, he broadens it to everyone who would fear God. His loving kindness endures forever. And so everyone who hears this testimony, the whole congregation is commanded to give thanks to God. Why is that? It's because his character doesn't change and he's worthy of that praise. We actually see a picture of this every Sunday evening with baptisms. When a person emerges from the waters of baptism, what happens? Everyone in the congregation claps. What are they celebrating? They're not clapping because of the skill of the one who's baptizing the person. And they're not clapping because of the eloquence of the one giving the testimony. Why are they clapping? They're clapping because they're appreciating the goodness of God in saving a sinner. Every testimony is purposed to cause all who hear to give thanks to Yahweh because he is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. And so this is the congregation's devotion. But we also see in a longer section, verses five through 14, the captives deliverance And this is a testimony of salvation. What is the nature of this testimony? It's one of salvation. Every testimony is a story. And it's a story with a grand climactic turning point. There's a time that a person was worshiping idols and the Lord changes his heart to worship the true God. There was one who was a slave to sin and a servant of Satan who became a son of God. Every believer has been transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. And while every other person who gives a salvation testimony confesses that they are a sinner in need of salvation, Jesus alone in his testimony can stand as the perfect one who just says that God saved him because he was righteous, because he never sinned, because he deserved that perfect praise as God. But this story has a turning point and and it starts in distress and it turns to joy. 
And we can see out of my distress, I called upon Yah, verse 5. He answered me and set me in a large place. Basically, what we're going to see is that he gives an overview of God's salvation in 5 through 9 and then the details of it in 10 through 14. We can see how this applies to Jesus, right? We know from Isaiah 53, if we look at the distress that he's in, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was afflicted. He was pushed down. And we see from the New Testament that he was beaten, mocked, he carried a cross, he wore a crown of thorns, he endured spitting and beating. He was in great distress and anguish. He was even in distress before the physical punishment started. As in the Garden of Gethsemane, he reflected on the wrath of God, which he would endure on behalf of sinners. And he sobbed and he cried and he prayed. In his distress, he called upon Yah. And what does it say? But Yah answered me and set me in a large place. That's deliverance. That's salvation. That's victory. And in a large place, that's so much more stable. You can think of a very small place. This is the way that people try to improve their balances with one of those balance boards, you know, that rolls on the little cylinder and there's the board on top of it and it's wobbly. Why? Because there's very small points of contact with the board and with the ground. It's very wobbly. That's the opposite of what this is. A large place, a broad place, like a firm slab of of concrete. It's not going to be moved. It's a stable place. It's trustworthy. And that's the theme of this section. Yahweh is trustworthy. And we see Yahweh is for me. I will not fear what can man do to me. It's because Yahweh is the trustworthy one. Yahweh is among me, is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look on triumph on those who hate me. And then he says, it is better to take refuge in Yahweh than to trust in man. It literally said it is good to take refuge in Yahweh more than to trust in man. And why does it say good? Because that's the character of God that this psalm is talking about. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness endures forever. And so it's good to take refuge in Yahweh so much better than to trust in any man. It's good to take refuge in Yahweh so much better to trust in nobles, even the, the wisest, even the most capable men. What is your trust in? If you would be like Jesus, you would place your trust not in yourself, not in any of your own strategies, not in any human solutions, not in a better situation, but in Yahweh. His name is like a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are elevated. And so it is good to trust in Yahweh. Then he goes on to the details of the salvation. Every salvation story has details of how God saved a person from a situation of distress to one of joy. And so here's the details of this testimony. We read all the nations surrounded me. And by the way, as we look at these few verses, I want you to notice what the language is doing here, what the poetry is doing. It's making the enemies seem worse and worse, more and more dangerous, more and more threatening. And yet I want you to see another thing, the confident hope of the psalmist never changes. So despite the changing circumstances, the hope of this one testifying does not change. All nations surrounded me. Again, we we see this in the life of Jesus, 
right? We had the Jews who surrounded him, the, the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they surrounded him to kill him, to arrest him, to put him on trial. You also have the Romans, his executioners, the ones who would ultimately nail him to a cross. And you also had the crowds who were a conglomeration of nations, people from all over. And so you have all nations surrounding Jesus. And yet his trust remains stalwart. In the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. He is confident in the help of Yahweh because of the goodness and the love of God. And he says in verse 11, they surrounded me. Indeed, they surrounded me. It's like the circle of enemies is getting closer in. And yet his confession doesn't change. In the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. And now they're not only encircling, but they are stinging. The pain is coming. The blood is flowing. The thorns are poking. The fists are beating. Spit is flying. Nails are piercing. The crowds are mocking. They surround me like bees, he says. This is great suffering. This is great distress, great agony. And yet his stalwart hope in the Father does not change. In the name of Yahweh, I will surely cut them off. Verse 13, he addresses the ones who afflict him. You pushed me down violently to make me fall, but Yahweh helped me. Yah is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. That's a quote from Exodus 15:2, a great song that Moses wrote as the people of Israel stepped onto the far side of the Red Sea after God led them through on dry land and then covered the Egyptians with the waters of the sea. It's a great story, a, a song, a confession that Yahweh is strong. He is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is what you say after the Exodus. There was not a greater salvation that happened in Israel until that time. And why would that come up again here? Well, it's because the theology that the author is developing is one of a new and greater exodus. The only testimony that parallels the deliverance from Egypt is the deliverance from sin, which is a more cruel captor. The deliverance that Christ accomplished himself through the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's goodness and everlasting loving kindness. And so it was a great day in Israel, that day that the waters of the Red Sea flowed over the Egyptians and covered them, but it was a greater deliverance when Jesus' own blood flowed, covering a multitude of sinners who would become righteous and follow him out of the clutch of hell into the gates of heaven. This is the testimony that Jesus makes possible. He is the one who Yahweh helps he is the one who cuts off all enemies, and he is the one that if you join yourself to him and follow him, he will lead you also to glory and victory. That's what a testimony of salvation looks like. And it's amazing to see this account of, of impossible distress surrounding enemies, and yet the captive's deliverance. And so at this point, we have seen the congregation's devotion, and that, that's a, that this is a testimony of thanksgiving. We've seen the captive's deliverance, that so this is a testimony of salvation. And now I want to look at verses 15 through 21, the conqueror's delight. This is a testimony of eternal life. There is no greater delight 
than this? What's the response to so great a salvation that was just mentioned in the previous verses? Well, we see two things here, if I can give you a few bonus CDs. There's the cheers of the delivered and the confidence of the deliverer in verses 15 through 18 and then in verses 19 through 21. And so first we see the cheers of those who were going along with the conqueror, the victor. You see verse 15, the the sound of joyful shouting and salvation in the tents of the righteous. And what are they saying? What are they cheering? The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. The right hand of Yahweh is exalted. The right hand of Yahweh does valiantly. That's another allusion back to Exodus 15, 6, that song of the sea, that song of Moses, that great celebration of the salvation of God through the Exodus. And again, here, celebration of the new Exodus through Christ. And so the delivered, the people who are delivered by Christ cheer and they rejoice. And what do they rejoice in? They rejoice that Jesus is the firstborn of those raised from the dead. Look at his testimony in in verse 17. I will not die. Indeed, I will live and recount the works of Yah. Yah has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is victorious resurrection. This recounts how Jesus did endure much suffering, much punishment, not for his own sins, but for all who would trust in him. And so he did suffer severe discipline, and yet he explains, I will not die. Indeed, I will live and recount the works of Yahweh. So this is the hope of resurrection. And we also see the confidence of the conqueror. Look at this great, who has a confidence like this in verse 19? Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to Yah. How many of you would be confident to walk up to the doors of the White House and say, hey, open up. I'm going to walk right in here. How much more to walk up to the gates of heaven and say, open up the gates of righteousness. I will enter through them. Who can say that? Jesus can say that because he alone is righteous. And the amazing truth is that because of his righteousness, because all who join themselves to him in faith, trusting in his sacrifice are also clothed in that righteousness so they can enter those gates of righteousness too. But it's only because he did first. You see verse 20, this is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous will enter through it. And the conclusion of this section, I shall give thanks to you, repeating the same theme of this psalm that rings throughout. For you have answered me and you have become my salvation. It's appropriate at this point to match how, though I'm arguing that this is Jesus' testimony, it resonates in the hearts of all believers. And that is because for the very reason that Jesus himself accomplished this, all who trust in him can read it as their testimony too. That's what's amazing about this psalm. Uh, We could not have a testimony like this if Jesus didn't first. We could not go into the gates of heaven if Jesus did not pave the way. We could not go past the veil if Jesus did not tear it in two. And so the amazing thing is that Jesus' testimony becomes ours through faith in him. In verse 6, we see Yahweh is for me. I will not fear what can man do to me. And Paul picks this up in Romans 8 and verse 31. 
He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And then in verses six through seven, we see Yahweh is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look on triumph of those who hate me. But the idea of Yahweh helping me, if we go to Hebrews 13 and verse six, We see this. We can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And it's because Jesus conquered first. In verse 17, of course, the resurrection, I will not die. Indeed, I will live. Jesus is proclaimed as the firstborn of all who raised from the dead. That's the most prominent one, the preeminent one, because he did, we will too. Jesus said that he has life in himself. And this is where his testimony differs from ours. He is the only one who can raise himself from the dead. And that's because he is both God and man. He has the power of life in himself. He, he said in John, I have the authority to lay down my life and I have the authority to take it up again. And so he says first that I will not die. Indeed, I will live and because of his resurrection, we can say the same thing. It's amazing. And then we also get to enter the gates of righteousness because Christ is worthy of that. And we join ourselves with him. And so at this point, we have seen the congregation's devotion, the captive's deliverance, and the conqueror's delight, the delight of eternal life, a testimony of eternal life and resurrection. And finally, we'll come here to the very famous verses in this psalm quoted so many times in the New Testament. I want you to see the cornerstone's dominion. The cornerstone's dominion, the the last verses of this psalm. And this is a testimony of marvelous joy. We're going to see a, a phrase here. It is marvelous in our eyes. Look at this. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is from Yahweh. It is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous. It's something that causes us to be astounded, to wonder, to be amazed. Our language, because we use words like this so often, has become dull. But it's not just, wow, this is awesome. This is great. It's this is marvelous. This is amazing. There is nothing more beautiful and astounding than what Yahweh has accomplished here. Maybe you've heard someone say when some sort of, when, when something happens where you're like, oh, that, that's, that's a coincidence. And they go, oh, but it's really good. Uh, and they say, it's a God thing. Like, oh, God totally worked that out. Now, everything, everything that happens because of God's sovereignty is something that he does. And so technically everything is a God thing. But there are definitely some things that are very clearly only happening because God did it. It just shouts clearly that this is the work of God alone. And that's what we see here. Because there's no way that the builders... Those who know most clearly, they're the experts in building. They know what stones are important, you would think. They know how to build a tower. They know how to build a wall. And so for them to reject a certain stone, you go, wow, that seems like pretty reasonable then. Like they're the experts. But what Yahweh has accomplished is that he became the chief 
cornerstone, the most important stone, both a foundation for the church, the one on whom all things are built, and also the capstone, the, the one who is elevated over all. Jesus becomes the one, the foundation, the author and the perfecter of faith, the foundation and the capstone. And so he is that precious cornerstone. We, we see that alluded to in Matthew 21. Jesus tells the leaders that that's who he is. In Mark 12, parallel passage. In Luke 20, same idea. In Acts 4.11, Peter tells the people that he's preaching to about the cornerstone who was rejected. And in 1 Peter 2.7, he talks again about the precious cornerstone. And we heard Pastor John explain a little bit of that this morning. And so this is Amazing that God created an amazing way of salvation through the Messiah who would be seen as a stone to be rejected, but would end up being the most important stone in the entire building. That kind of turn of events is marvelous in our eyes. And another famous verse in in verse is 24. This is the day Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe you've heard this verse. Maybe you've heard it made into a little song about how you should have a good attitude at all times and every day because it's the day that Yahweh has made. That's a great attitude to have, but that's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about this day that God accomplished, the day of salvation, a day where it was made possible that people could be right with God. This is the day that Yahweh has made, that that day when Christ would be exalted after having suffered a great and tragic death. He humbled himself so that he would be exalted above all. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we come to these next few verses and they're sort of like a cheer. You know, they're, they're like a prayer, but they're like the kind of prayer that you pray because it's happening. It's like when you see uh, your favorite player on a soccer team running down to score a goal and you just know they're going to score and you're like, go, 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 score. And they do it. This is like, oh, Yahweh, save. Oh, Yahweh, succeed. You know he's going to do it. And so you're cheering as he accomplishes this victory. And like I mentioned before, these are the verses that the crowd quotes when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the amazing thing is that while they recognize the person, like Pastor John was saying earlier, they don't properly understand the time that he is going to accomplish this full dominion, this cornerstone dominion, the time when he is going to come back to earth and rule over all other nations. Daniel describes this as the rock that comes and and fills the whole earth and fills every other nation. There is none that is not subject to him. Well, Jesus' reign on earth has not started yet. This is part of the testimony that hasn't happened yet, which is kind of a cool perspective for us to have here to see some of this testimony has been fulfilled and some of it has yet to take place. And so when the crowds say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or in the name of Yahweh, that's the right person that they're saying that to. It's to Jesus. And yet Jesus will tell them, He'll tell the religious leaders in another context, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we know from that that Jesus is talking about his second coming here. That's what he's talking about here. And and what we see then is at that time we have hope. 
we have a true hope through Christ that he will come again in power, that this cornerstone once rejected will become the chief cornerstone. Even as he is elevated in heaven now, he will return a second time and it will be said, blessed is the one who came, who comes in the name of Yahweh and he will establish his kingdom on earth and establish perfect justice and there will no longer be any unrighteousness that is not perfectly judged and punished and he will reign on earth for a thousand years. And this psalm, this testimony wraps up with all of the fitting thanksgiving and praise of which he is worthy. Let's look at the last few verses. Yahweh is God, verse 27, and he has given us light Oh, that reminds us of Isaiah 60, verse 1, which says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And it also reminds us of John 1, 4, that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And there's a cheerful offer of sacrifice here. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. This is a thanksgiving, an expression of thanksgiving. And and then praise in verse 28, you are my God, I give thanks to you. My God, I exalt you. That's another allusion back to Exodus 5, or I'm sorry, 15, that song of Moses after the Exodus. The great salvation of God is being extolled here. There's an amazing parallel in what God has accomplished in this marvelous testimony, in this way that God saved the world through the death of his son that parallels what we see in Francis Scott Key's testimony of the battle of Fort McHenry. Uh, What an interesting line if you think about it in the Star-Spangled Banner. He says, but the rocket's red glare The bombs bursting in air gave proof through the night that the flag was still there. Do you see what's going on there? The night was dark. He couldn't see the flag because it was cloudy. It was stormy. It was probably raining. There's no light except for the light that the bombs shot by the British ships towards the fort shone. And he says that those weapons of destruction actually provided the hope that he might still be saved. God accomplished something so much greater in the life of Christ that it would be through the rejection, through the death of the son of God, the one sent into the world to save the world, the greatest evil in the universe of murdering the son of God would turn into the greatest and most powerful testimony that the one who rose from the dead and ascended into heaven will lead many brothers, many sons to glory as well. That's why it says this is marvelous in our eyes, a great turn of events, an amazing salvation testimony. And so we wrap up with the same verse that we started with, verse 29, the same as verse 1. What should we do with a testimony like this? What should we do with a testimony that shows such an amazing display of God's character and salvation? Give thanks to Yahweh, for he is good, for his loving kindness endures forever. Father, we do give you thanks this morning, and we marvel 
at the hope that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for the suffering that Jesus went to. We thank you that he was distressed and that you answered him when he called. We thank you that though he was surrounded, he cut off all enemies and the last enemy, even death, he saved us from. We thank you that there can be joyful shouting in the tents of the righteous because of what he has accomplished. We thank you that you have opened to him the gates of righteousness so that we may follow him in. And I pray that any here, if they have not bowed their knee to Christ, will do so, so that they will not be among those enemies who are cut off, but among those righteous ones who will follow him, covered by his blood and righteousness. Yahweh, we thank you. We, we thank you for what you've accomplished. It is marvelous how you've brought this salvation to us. I pray you glorify the name of your son more and more, and that we would esteem him more and more highly because of the great hope that he has given us. We have so much hope in his salvation, and even his soon return. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.